It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Two moms looking for inspiration wherever wherever we we can can find it. it. I'm so excited you're here with Tangential Inspiration, episode 113. Tonight, I'm going to talk about... First off, The Power of People Uniting for Real Change, a story of Nancy Russell, who fought to conserve an area of the Pacific Northwest. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about Bono of U2 and how he's so much more than a rock star. And finally, my mother-in-law sent me an article about a brilliant way kids in Redmond, Oregon are dealing with their homeless crisis. Lots to talk about. I know many of our listeners are from our home state of Oregon. We also have a lot of listeners in Seattle, Vancouver, Canada. These guys will understand. They'll get what I'm about to say. The Pacific Northwest is beautiful. We have so many lovely natural areas, and many of our views are absolutely breathtaking. I love to hike around the Pacific Northwest, and I'd say quasi-camp because I'm not a super camper, but when I can get the time to do so, I try to get out and backpack as much as I can with the kids. Majestic forests, gorgeous lakes and rivers, amazing mountains and canyons, and a beautiful coastline. The Pacific Northwest is awesome in its natural beauty. We have a little bit of everything. We're close to the mountains. We're close to the ocean. If you're an outdoorsy person, you should plan a trip to the Pacific Northwest in your lifetime. You most definitely won't regret it. And one of the most beautiful spots is the Columbia Gorge. The Columbia River runs through the gorge separating Oregon and Washington State. It's about 80 miles long, just outside of Portland. And the actual gorge is up to 4,000 feet deep in spots with deep river channels and high rocky peaks. The Cascade Mountains form a backdrop to the gorge, and there are 90 waterfalls on the Oregon side alone. You may not know it, but it's likely that you've seen pictures of Multnomah Falls sometime in your life, as it's one of the most photographed waterfalls in the United States. There's so many gorgeous hikes in the Columbia Gorge. I even have a book called Curious Gorge that has a bunch of gorgeous hikes. But they have beautiful vistas. And if you go at the right time, fields of wildflowers, some of which only grow in the Columbia Gorge. Amy and I celebrated our 10,000 downloads of this podcast by taking our husbands hiking in the gorge. And it was so much fun. It was a little bit overgrown since people hadn't been out because of COVID and we kept hearing some grunting and we're a little worried it was bears. They were bears out there, but obviously we survived. Also, the gorge is home to one of my favorite events, the Gorgeous Relay, which starts in the gorge and actually ends out in Portland. Beautiful, beautiful course. There are also opportunities for boating, kayaking, and some of the best windsurfing in the world. Native Americans have been living and fishing salmon for more than 10,000 years before the settlers came. It was part of the Oregon Trail laid out by Lewis and Clark when they first explored a pathway to the Pacific Ocean. It's still an important transportation corridor for commercial ships and trucking. What's even more amazing is the scenic area of the Columbia Gorge has been designated as a federally protected national scenic area. This means that the U.S. government has decided that the natural and scenic attributes of an area are so outstanding that they need to be protected. In fact, the Columbia Gorge was only the second area to receive this designation, and it's the largest national scenic area. 
There are currently only 10 such areas designated as National Scenic Areas, although there are several that are pending for approval for the designation. The person most directly responsible for getting the Columbia Gorge protection was Nancy Russell, who loved the Columbia Gorge and fought to get the designation as a protected scenic area in 1986. Nancy was born in 1932 and grew up in Oregon, spending a lot of time outdoors. Besides being an amateur tennis champion, Nancy spent a lot of time hiking, backpacking, and cataloging wildflowers. Nancy had spent a lot of time hiking and camping in the gorge and was known in her circles as a staunch opponent of logging in the Columbia Gorge. At a meeting of the Portland Garden Club, she was nominated to build an organization to protect the Columbia Gorge, which would naturally put her at odds with landowners and the timber industry. She had no political experience, but she had a lot of enthusiasm. She began to build a coalition, and within a few months, she had a group of about 30 people who were lobbying local politicians to protect the natural beauty of the gorge. Nancy spent years lecturing, lobbying, fundraising, and testifying in different proceedings to keep the area protected. Nancy also organized hikes to get people out in the gorge just to see why it needed to be protected and cherished. She was out there leading hikes and talking up the need for the scenic area on most weekends. The timber industry and people who owned property in the gorge spent lots of money attacking Nancy's proposal and Nancy herself. They tried to vilify her as someone who wanted to take away the rights of the landowners and tried to mark her as an outsider. Those against the plan to create a national scenic area had bumper stickers on their trucks that said, Save the Gorge from Nancy Russell. Her tires were slashed multiple times and she received threatening phone calls and even some death threats. Still, it didn't deter her. She continued to get more and more people on board and raise funds to purchase land. She organized a group of people that purchased 33 pieces of property in the gorge in an area thought to be the most beautiful or sensitive in order to protect the land. She raised $300,000 and loaned it interest-free to the Trust for Public Land that bought up the lots and a new subdivision that would have encroached on the gorge, thus preventing the project from ever building houses. Eventually, she got enough support from people on both sides of the river and at both ends of the gorge that Oregon Senator Mark Hatfield took notice and started to help with requesting the designation. Nancy flew to Washington, D.C. several times to testify about the need for protection in the Columbia Gorge and testified before Congress. When the bill to protect the Columbia Gorge by designating it as a national scenic area passed Congress with the help of Senator Mark Hatfield, President Reagan threatened to veto it. Senator Hatfield, who was in charge of the powerful Appropriations Committee, let President Reagan know that some of Reagan's top priorities might get tied up in the Appropriations Committee if he didn't sign. So on November 17, 1986, President Reagan signed the Columbia River Gorge National Scenic Area Act into law. That is quite a mouthful. You'd think that after six years of fighting, Nancy would take a break. But that wasn't her way. She definitely kept going. She continued to advocate for the protection of the gorge and raise money to purchase more land in the gorge to preserve it. In 2008, Nancy passed away from ALS. Fittingly, a monument was established for her at the Overlook at Cape Horn in the gorge, the same spot she stopped developers from building a housing development. I think she'd like that. There's a new book out about her by Bowen Blair called A Force for Nature, Nancy Russell's Fight to Save the Columbia Gorge. And it has some beautiful pictures and just talks about her life. And I just love it because it goes to show that one person who's passionate about doing something good can make a huge difference.
I love to tease my mom about the cave we were raised in. She was very strict about what we watched and who we listened to. I love to give her a hard time, but I also make sure to remind her that I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. For years, I thought that my mom went into my room and turned my stereo to the Christian channel to, I'll just say, to encourage me to listen to it. And while she denies it, I know that it happened. I know that my stereo kept getting changed to KPDQ. Being the detective that I am, I've now concluded that she must have been listening to my stereo while she was cleaning. The Christian station didn't play U2, though I think they should have then, and I think they should now. Regardless, I'm pretty certain that U2's a band that both me and my mom can get behind. Their album October was pretty much all about God. I admire that they don't apologize for their faith, but instead put it out there and welcome others to do the same. These guys are rock stars for sure, but rock stars with a serious conscience. I was reading that years ago, Bono came out with a concert in a headband that said coexist. It was following a terrorist bombing. And I just love that that is the example that he sets. He wants all religions, all people, all socioeconomic backgrounds come together for the common good. I love, love, love their music. Growing up in the 80s totally takes me back. It's one of my favorite movies way back then. Well, actually, that was the 90s, Blown Away. It had a bunch of U2 songs in it. I always include U2 on my St. Patrick's Day playlist for my cycle classes. And their music just brings back all sorts of memories and definitely gives me some energy. But more than the band, I so admire Bono, the life he leads and the example he sets. He's far from perfect. And he'd be the first person to tell you that, but he's constantly trying to be better, always learning, sharing, and encouraging others to do the same. The best part is that he seems to have a good sense of humor. In interviews, portions of his book Surrender and his TED Talks, I've been trying to absorb all I can from Bono the last week, even going back to watch his first video, their first video, I should say, on MTV. Gloria, besides them looking 10, maybe 15, and I completely got a kick out of his almost mullet. He definitely had a mullet later on, but this was an almost flowing hair, this sleeveless coat type of thing. I don't get the look, but he was rocking something. Even with trying to soak up as much as I could in the last week, I was only able to scratch the surface of this guy. So there will probably have to be at least two episodes at some point. U2 has won 22 Grammy Awards. They're revered both in Ireland, their home country, and in the United States. Bono led Jubilee in 2000 as they worked to cancel over $100 billion of debt for poor countries. He co-founded One and Red, nonprofits that fight extreme poverty. So Bono's definitely using his voice to fight extreme poverty as well as AIDS and HIV in countries that don't have the resources. U2 even wrote a tribute song to Martin Luther King Jr., their pride in the name of love, which I find interesting because next week is going to be Martin Luther King Jr.'s holiday here in the States. I thought it was an interesting tie-in, too, because Jesse Helms, a conservative U.S. senator, back in the day was opposed to making Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a national holiday. He also thought that AIDS was a gay disease, so he didn't want to provide any funding for it. But Bono found a common ground and he talked about lepers and how they were treated in the Bible, I guess even brought Jesse Helms to tears. And Jesse Helms ended up 
voting to provide funding to Africa. So I just love that Bono has a belief in an optimism in America that a lot of us have lost, but he noted that America is still a song being written. And I just love that optimistic outlook. Bono's a fellow tourist, so maybe that's why he's a bit of a scrapper. Born May 10th, 1960 in Dublin, his given name is Paul David Hewson, which I think is pretty interesting because my brother is named David Paul. Told side story, but even more interesting, his dad was Catholic and his mom was a Protestant Christian, which was taboo in Ireland. His dad was a postal worker and allowed Paul and his older brother, Norman, to attend church with their mother. Originally, his parents had agreed that the first son would be born Anglican and the second son would be raised Catholic but apparently they let both of the boys go to church with the mom. The father would drop them off and then head up the street so as not to draw any attention. And I can't help but wonder if their marriage with the two different religions didn't shape Bono's belief that everyone should come together to better the world, setting aside our differences and finding one thing that brings us together. He's referred to it as actualism, where the right and left can come together if the passion's there. We just need to find the common ground. I think Bono had a sense of right and wrong from an early age and started standing up for the underdog when he was a kid. As a kid, he had a Batman costume, and he'd say he was going to fight crime, even when kids would tease him and pull down the mask. On his first day of school, a boy bit one of his friends, and Paul shoved him into a railing. I think he got into his fair share of trouble at school, and I also think he got a sense of humor from his mother. Besides working at the post office, his father was an ultimate DIYer. One day he was working on some shelves or cabinets and lost control of the saw. I'll say he was totally fine, so don't worry about this story. But he hollers down from the stairs to Iris, Bono's mom, and yells at her to call an ambulance that he's castrated himself. And she couldn't help but giggle as she's picking up the phone to call for the ambulance. I guess she also would occasionally giggle at church at times and just was a master seamstress and had a really good sense of humor. Bono didn't have a whole lot in common with his father or his brother, who was seven years older than him. They both enjoyed music, especially his father. It's a shame they couldn't bond with that. Bono did take up chess, and he would occasionally play with them. When he was 12, he enrolled in a chess tournament. He didn't win, but I just think it's priceless to think of this rock legend at a chess tournament at such a young age at that. Bono often borrowed albums from his brother Norman. He liked David Bowie, The Beatles, and Led Zeppelin. Also a guy named Rory Gallagher, who I guess was an Irish rocker that I need to look up. I need to listen to him. When it came time for him to buy his first album, it was Happy Christmas, War is Over by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. I think this is such a perfect first album for him since the song asked the world to end all wars. Bono's world completely changed when he was just 14. His mother Iris collapsed at her father's funeral. She'd never recover and died in the hospital. His relationship with his father and brother only got worse without his mother around, and they were constantly screaming. He jokes that this is the period in his life that he really developed the lungs he uses on stage. He couldn't talk with his father, so he decided to try and give God a try, joining a prayer group at school to talk to God. At school one day, he noticed a sign that said, Money wasted on a drum kit. Anyone done the same on guitars? It was September 1976, and the sign was posted by a 16-year-old drummer wannabe named Larry Mullen. 
It intrigued Bono, but he didn't know how to play the guitar or sing. His brother Norman played a bit and had given Bono an acoustic guitar, but he still couldn't play it, really couldn't sing. But that September, he went to Larry and said he would be their front man. I know a lot of people groan at Bono's confidence, and some argue that he's arrogant, but I guess, like anything, it's the spin you put on it. Personally, I admire that he had the confidence to put himself out there. I absolutely admire this about him and want to be a little more like that, taking chances and putting myself out there. We don't grow in our comfort zone, and sometimes we need to push ourselves more than we do. I like to play it safe and limit my risks, protecting myself. That he had the gumption to go ask to be in a band when he had absolutely no skill is crazy to me. But taking that chance had such a great reward for Bono and the world. The boys in the band belonged to a bit of a gang in Lipton Village. Totally innocent thing. But they all gave each other nicknames. That's when David Evans, who would become their guitarist, became The Edge. And Paul was called Bonovox. It was actually after a hearing aid store in the village. First, he was not a fan of the nickname, but when he learned that it translated to good voice in Latin, he approved. Their first band was named Feedback, named after that awful sound speakers give, that ear-piercing sound that's way worse than any fingernails on the chalkboard. The boys played a concert at the school talent show, and one person in attendance noted that they just wanted it to end. But that's where Bono got his first taste what it was like to be up front, that front man up on stage, working the crowd. People at school were impressed too and started treating him differently. He was hoping it might catch the attention of a young brunette named Allie Stewart. Allison Stewart was a year behind Bono and he was smitten with her even though she declined his, his interest. He never gave up though, another quality I so admire in Bono. Everyone knows that he eventually got the girl, and they've been married for 40 years. Again, I love his tenacity, his perseverance. He wasn't a stalker, but just was patient to wait for things to happen. Feedback got their first paid gig. I think it was a school dance or prom or something, but they totally bombed. I mean, bombed so much so that they renamed the band so that people wouldn't know they were the same guys. The whole experience made them change their name from Feedback to The Hype. Part of their problem was that their covers just weren't working for them, and actually I'm grateful they didn't because that's what got Bono to start writing some songs for the group. He'd gone to a Clash concert, and while he loved their music, he was mostly moved that they wanted to change the world. I think seeing them in concert changed Bono. He still wanted to be a rock star, but he wanted more than just that. In 1975, Adam Clayton, another band member, signed them up for a Battle of the Bands in Limerick. The winner would get 500 pounds, which I guess was equivalent to $975, and a record demo with CBS Ireland. He also thought the band needed another name change. A friend suggested U2. They thought it looked pretty cool with it just being two symbols, and it could mean U2, as in you as well, or U2, as in two people. Plus, it was the name of an impressive American spy plane. Also called the Dragon Lady, the U-2 plane was used during the Cold War since it could fly so high that it would prevent being detected, sometimes up to 70,000 feet up. The band U-2 was probably more surprised than anyone when they actually won the contest. It didn't get any big record deals, but it did start to attract some attention. Religion was still very important to Bono. He, The Edge, and Larry attended a prayer group called Shalom. 
they had a song called 11 o'clock TikTok that was about an 11 o'clock practice that Bono must have missed. But the rest of their songs, the majority of the songs on the October album were about God. For the group, they felt they could be rock stars and love God at the same time. But the Shalom Prayer Group disagreed and gave them an ultimatum. It was God or rock and roll. I can't help but wonder if this isn't where some of Bono's frustration with organized religion might stem from. MTV was a brand new thing, and you two found themselves on the screen in 1981 with their song Gloria. The following year, Bono married the woman he had been smitten with from high school. Allie and Bono had dated five years, and they tied the knot in August of 1982. They had a honeymoon in Jamaica, returned back so that Allie could attend University College in Dublin. She was majoring in political science, and Bono headed straight out to tour. Being Irish, the band was invited to the St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York City, but they declined the offer when they discovered that the parade was dedicated to an important IRA leader. So the IRA was an armed organization in Ireland that was using, obviously, force to break away from the British rule. For U2, they didn't want any money donated for bombs that would kill people. While many Americans supported the IRA, the band had seen firsthand what it had done in their country. Once again, I'm so impressed that these guys, they lived by their convictions versus what might make them more popular or sell more records. U2 was invited to perform at the Live Aid concert on July 13, 1985. The concert drew in an estimated 1.5 billion television viewers and raised millions of dollars for famine relief in Ethiopia. I think we need to do an entire episode just on Live Aid because everything that went into it is just so amazing. The concert was on a strict time schedule, and U2 was allotted 12 minutes to perform. They chose their song, Bad. And Bono spent much of his time out with the crowd while the band was just back playing. Instead of infuriating fans, it actually made fans respect Bono more. Probably because they could see more of the human side of Bono versus the rock star. I think that concert changed Bono in a way too, making him a rock star with a cause. He and Ali traveled under the radar to Ethiopia and volunteered in orphanages after it. It only made him more passionate as he saw it as more than a cause but an emergency. These were human suffering. I admire his compassion, and then he opened his heart to that. Not an easy thing to do, especially when you have a father ask you to take his infant son home with you. For that father, he knew it was an opportunity for the child to live. Staying back in Africa, those odds were pretty slim. Bono didn't take the baby home with him, but he most definitely helped save countless lives, not just with concerts and raising money, but by promoting real change and getting people inspired to do something. His Catholic father married a Protestant woman and would drink a Protestant whiskey and taught Bono to honor differences. He also went to a school that was open to different religions. I think that's mostly what has made the difference. Yes, Bono's outspoken, but he speaks from the heart and he tries to bring people together. Kind of odd to think about this angsty rocker bringing people together, but he strives to find common ground, or as he notes, the one thing people can agree on and get passionate about. The guy's both condemned and cheered for the Bush administration. He's used that phrase that poverty breeds despair and despair breeds violence, and that is our crisis. That totally sounds like Bono, but it's actually a comment that came from Colin Powell. He found a common fight and something they could improve together, and instead of arguing about their differences, they're united. 
I think that might be what inspires me the most about Bono. He's very open about the problems in our world and that they don't have a neat or tidy solution, but we need to roll up our sleeves and do a little bit together. Then we can rewrite the rules, transform lives, and change the world. Less arguing and trying to change someone's opinion and more time finding what we can come together to improve. One of Bono's strengths has always been working with people from different backgrounds. While politically Bono tends to be on the liberal side, he's worked with corporations and politicians that may be diametrically opposed in certain areas, but share a common goal in limited areas. He's worked with former presidents Bill Clinton, George H. Bush, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. Bono's worked with many other world leaders as well, including Mikhail Gorbachev, Pope Francis, Justin Trudeau, Emmanuel Macron, Angela Merkel, Malala Yousafzai, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Bono works with groups from many different religions, focusing on common ideals rather than their differences. He's worked with politicians on both sides, worked with religious leaders from an assortment of denominations, and collaborated with other artists, all to better the world. You two and another one of my favorite bands, Green Day, performed together at the first football game in the Louisiana Superdome after the 2005 Hurricane Katrina. The Saints Are Coming was a song that they covered and it later sold online to benefit Music Rising, a charity created by The Edge to bring instruments and music programs back to New Orleans. I just love that. These two powerhouse bands with U2 and Green Day coming together for a common cause. Just one more reminder of how much more we can get done if we work together. So the one campaign that he co-founded, Bono and Bobby Shriver, they started in 2004. Bobby Shriver is the son of Eunice Shriver, who we covered back in episode 40. He's also the nephew of JFK and Robert Kennedy. Bobby Shriver is an attorney, journalist, and like his mother, an activist. Bono and Bobby had started the predecessor to one campaign with an organization called DATA, which stands for Debt, AIDS, Trade in Africa. DATA was a multinational, non-governmental organization that worked towards social equality and justice in Africa through debt relief, fair trade rules for Africa, the elimination of AIDS in Africa, and improved democracy throughout Africa. Data, through the advocacy of Bono and Shriver, joined 10 more nonprofit humanitarian groups in Africa and around the world, increasing their communication and cooperation and increasing their overall effectiveness. The name One was inspired by the belief that all of those groups working with one voice coming together to advocate for the poor, regardless of the country of origin, religion, or politics, can change the world for the better. The One campaign advocates for sustainable development and policies to help those who live in conditions of extreme poverty around the world. It promotes the treatment and prevention of diseases through vaccination and clean water initiatives, as well as education, focusing on preventable diseases like HIV, malaria, and tuberculosis, which kills hundreds of thousands around the world. As we've discussed several times on the podcast, access to clean water is still a huge problem in many parts of the world, and one works to expand access to clean water systems and electricity. They promote democracy and transparency in government and education for all. They also advocate for fairer trade practices and debt relief for developing countries. The One Campaign works with other groups like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which we discussed in Episode 11, 
Apple, Google, Coca-Cola, the Rockefeller Foundation, and other groups for funding special projects. They have released studies that show that each year more than a trillion dollars leave developing countries due to corruption. A trillion. Women and girls who are most directly affected by poverty than men. Their report showed that in 2016, half a billion women could not read and that girls accounted for 74% of new HIV infections in adolescent Africans. In 2017, they listed the 20 worst countries to be a girl in and that 130 million girls were out of school. They've involved Oprah, Meryl Streep, Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, Elton John, Mary J. Blige, Shonda Rhimes, and being spokespersons for the Poverty is Sexist campaign. One thing I, of course, love is that part of their Poverty is Sexist campaign, they encouraged women and girls around the world to post selfies in the Rosie the Riveter pose with the hashtag, we can do it. Instead of selfies, they called them strengthies. The One campaign has focused on the idea that raising women out of poverty is essential to improving the standard of living in developing countries. The One campaign's primary purpose is not fundraising, but informing people. Their campaigns state, we're not asking for your money, we're asking for your voice. It supports grassroots campaigns and projects to spread information about how to combat poverty and promote transparent democracy and root out corruption. They also organize people to lobby government officials and create student organizations on college campuses. The One campaign also owns Product Red, commonly branded as simply Red. Red is a licensed brand to partner with companies with clothing, cell phones, and other consumer products. They've partnered with companies like Apple, Nike, American Express, Starbucks, Converse, Electronic Arts, Gap, Motorola, Armani, Beats, and other companies for special Red-branded products. For example... Apple released a solid red iPhone 14 with the red brand. Portion of up to 50% of the red branded products goes to the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. One interesting thing I'm going to have to check out is is that the band The Killers does a new Christmas song each year with 100% of the profits going to Product Red. I'm always looking for new Christmas music and I absolutely love The Killers, so I will have to be on the lookout for that next year. I admire Bono the songwriter, especially after his book Surrender, 40 Songs, One Story. I respect the father and husband he is, even more so after the book as well. I love his honesty. He knows he's not without fault, but a work in progress, like all of us. I think if more of us gave us that grace, we would be much better off. I also have no doubt that if we spent more time working together to improve things we're passionate about, we'd be happier. Bono doesn't pretend to know it all. And he makes it clear he's always learning, always growing from those around him. I want some of that edgy confidence to fight for the underdogs, the people who can't fight for themselves. He shared during the 54th National Prayer Breakfast in America, It's not a coincidence that in scriptures, poverty is mentioned more than 2,100 times. It's not an accident. That's a lot of airtime. You know, the only time Jesus Christ is judgmental on the subject of the poor, as you have done it, Unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. I can pretty much say that's exactly why I love Bono. The search for common ground starts with a search for higher ground, even with your opponents, especially with your opponents. Bono. College can be an amazing experience. 
there's an opportunity to learn about a vast number of subjects. You get to meet people from different parts of the country or even the world. And it's often an eye-opener with exposure to different situations, different cultures, different ideas. For a lot of people, they really start finding who they are in college. For many students, it's the first time away from home and a time to gain independence. It's also very expensive and not available to everyone. For many, college is inaccessible due to finances or grades. And realistically, college just isn't for everyone. Many people with strong academic credentials forego college. For some, the military may be their dream job, or starting their own business, or working in a trade. Others just want to learn on their own and bristle at traditional educational programs. More and more people are self-taught, particularly in high-tech fields, or they take specialized classes such as coding that don't require courses in unrelated fields. Put simply, college isn't for everyone. There are tons of jobs out there that don't need a four-year degree. Construction jobs, sometimes called trade jobs, are good steady jobs. Construction continues on even during recessions, and electricians, plumbers are always in demand. The same is true with mechanics. School programs that help support these jobs provide students with pathways to other choices besides just going to college. My mother-in-law, Barbara, has always been amazing at sending me articles. Back in the day, she used to mail me newspaper articles. Now it's online, so we're saving paper, but she's still good at sending me articles. And she recently sent me one about Redmond High School in Redmond, Oregon. They're teaching students construction skills and helping with the homeless crisis in Central Oregon. The school has teamed up with Par Lumber and Hayden Homes to build a housing unit for the unhoused in Redmond. Par Lumber has developed a new technology called OptiFrame. OptiFrame uses prepared plans to cut all of the home's framing prior to delivery. All the pieces are ready to go and are assembled at the job site according to the instructions. Sort of like building a home following a Lego building instructions or a really elaborate IKEA project. I would fail horribly at this, but this job limits the waste, increases efficiency, helps eliminate mistakes, and makes construction easier. The students assemble the house together by following the plans and building portions of the home, almost like an assembly line. In the process, the students learn valuable building skills, as well as an understanding of the principles of construction. For many students, this sparks an interest in different construction fields. The homes will be fully assembled in Oasis Village. While not full-scale homes, Oasis Village provides housing and shelter for unhoused people and services to help transition those into permanent housing. The plan calls for separate small buildings, primarily for sleeping, with group facilities for bathrooms, showers, kitchen, and community areas. In addition to providing transition shelter, it also provides education on different topics like accessing social security benefits, applying and interviewing for jobs, and money management. There's a plan to create on-site offices for social services to increase the assistance that can be provided in the final planning stages, and they hope to be providing housing by the spring of 2023, so coming right up. Homelessness is a global problem, and projects like these provide students with important job skills and career options while also providing a much-needed service to our unhoused populations. I'd love to see more programs like this in our school, and I definitely think Bono would approve of that project. Where you live in the world should not determine whether you live in the world. Bono. 
Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.